morning. Happy Father's Day one more time from, from me to you. What a joy it is to, to hear about the different ministries that are uh, giving options to show the love of Christ to others. Is, that's really what our life is about here as we have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ is then to show Christ and tell others about Christ. And opportunities abound, don't they? They abound in every segment of our life. And I think the ones that you heard about these, this morning were uh, very essential ones as well. In 1636, in the midst of the 30-year war, there was a German pastor by the name of Martin Rinkert who's said, he has a statistic that none of us as pastors would ever want, and that is that he buried in one year 5,000 of his parishioners. Can you imagine? That's like 15 a day. 5,000 he buried. His, his parish was, was ravaged by war, by death, by uh, economic disaster. And at that time, uh, you might be thinking to yourself, well, what would I be going through in that? What would it be like for me? How would I respond to that? At that point in time, he sat down and he penned a, a little dinnertime prayer to, to read with his children, to, to pray to the Lord. Listen to the words of it. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things hath done who from our mother's arms has led us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. I mean, what a perspective, right? The perspective of Thanksgiving inside a very, very difficult uh, panorama of events happening around him. This was a guy who was able to do something that, that is a challenge for anyone uh, and is really our charge as believers. And that is he was able to keep a vertical perspective in the midst of a very difficult set of horizontal circumstances. Uh, the writer of the book of Colossians is such a guy, all right? Paul was such a man. He was a guy who, who was thankful in the most dire of circumstances. And, and as he writes here to the Colossians, he has a lot of reasons, quite honestly, not to be, to, to be thankful in a sense. Remember Paul at this point, from an earthly perspective, he, he was in prison. So he might be tempted to go, well, you know, Lord, why don't you just get me out of this and not be particularly thankful for his chains, Right? He, 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 he could have said to people, you know, instead of writing a letter to encourage the Colossians, he could have just said, hey, I've got my own problems, rattle his chains, you know, you guys come take care of me for a while. But that was not the type of man that Paul was. Paul had a heart for the church of Christ. And because he had a heart for Christ, he had a heart for others, just like you've heard about even this morning. And instead of looking at his own troubles, he takes his pen in hand and he writes the following to the church at Colossae. And this is a church that he's never seen again, you'll remember. He's never been to, but listen to his heart. And we're picking up in verse 3 of Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 3 through 8, Lord willing, this morning. We give thanks to God, this is his words, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. And what you have there in those few verses is you have one sentence, okay, in the Greek, one long sentence. And Paul does what he does characteristically uh, time and time again as he picks up the pen, and he begins with thanksgiving, and as we look at this, as we consider this, I really want us to start to ponder, hey, what is, I want to think of ourselves and how thankful we are, okay? Uh, how thankful are we? Do we realize what we have? Do we realize the opportunities that God has given us? Do we realize uh, the many blessings that he has generously poured down upon us? As a pastor, I've had so many opportunities, a lot more than I'd probably like to be in hospitals and things like that. I remember one guy in particular who not just while he's in the hospital, but for years of his life, for every breath that he breathed, he had to struggle for it. Can you imagine? Just 
I mean, it's time to breathe again. Are you ready? How many times have you breathed since I've been talking, right? And he just has to go, everything within him to get, it, get that breath in. We don't even think about our breathing and we're not thankful for it in a sense because we don't even think about what God's doing. You know, I poked my, my hand here, shaking a tree, getting plums down uh, yesterday. And uh, you know, I never think about this part of my hand, but now it hurts, okay? And so now I'm kind of like really thankful for that part of my hand when it doesn't hurt, you know what I'm saying? We have so much to be thankful for and we don't even think about all that we have to be thankful for. And, and Colossians, folks, is a, a letter that is filled with thanksgiving. No less than five times Paul talks of thanksgiving. And as you are reading Colossians, and I hope you're doing that, trying to read it at least five times a week, uh, check it out. Just look for the, the, the theme of thanksgiving that threads through this epistle. And so from basically the dark stench of prison, Paul lifts up a great epistle laden with thanksgiving. And the reason for that, and I don't want you to miss this because this is one of the great themes I think in the epistle is he does that because he has a great heavenward perspective. I mean, when you get to Colossians chapter three, really the hinge of the book, it begins with, if then you have been raised up with Christ, what? Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind where? On the things above, not where? On the things above. They're on earth, right? Because you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. You see that? Do you see the perspective? There's a saying that we like to use in the church, people like to use in the church. He's too heavenly minded for any earthly good. I hate that saying. I'll be honest with you. Please don't say that to me. Okay? Because you cannot be, I know what they mean, okay? They kind of, it's kind of like the Pharisees who, who said, you know, uh, I've got ways to help you, mom. I've got ways to help you, dad, but I've committed to the gods, to, to God. So, uh, you know, it's carbon, you know, don't, I'm not gonna touch it for you. And so it's a kind of a fake kind of love for somebody else. I know what people mean when they, when they talk about heaven, but they don't live it out is really what they're saying. You cannot be too heavenly minded for earthly good. If you are heavenly minded, can I just say to you, that theology must issue forth in a life that shows the love of Christ horizontally as well, which is exactly the theme that we've had in our service today, isn't it? Here's a guy that his perspective was not primarily ground level, but primarily vertical. Uh, the vertical was dominating or trumping the horizontal. It's not that he didn't, he just ignored it. You know, I don't, don't know what's going on. I don't really care about what's going on. With the he's talking all about horizontal issues here, isn't he? But he's dealing with it from a vertical perspective instead of a limited horizontal perspective. As I study this, as I, you know, I, I just have to examine my own life and say, okay, how does that play out in my own life when I run into to dire circumstances or hardship? And, and this would be what I would encourage for you as well. Look at this and say, okay, what does this look like in my life? Am I caught up in my hardships of, the, of life, whatever they may be, financially, uh, parentally, spousal, whatever, uh, health? Uh, and do I just kind of get pulled out of the game and find myself sagging away from a, a vibrant relationship with Christ? Or do I look at that as an opportunity that God has given me to show himself mighty, great, and, 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 and sufficient? Because he is. How often do you burst forth with thanksgiving, not just for what he's done in your life, but here's what we're gonna see here, what he's doing in the lives of others. How often do you just get, I mean, we get fired up in our Thanksgiving. When we pray and praise, usually it's about thank you for what you did for who? Go ahead and tell me. Who? Me, right? Ourselves, right? We get all fired up. Well, let me tell you what God did for me. And that's cool. And it is a reason for Thanksgiving. I'm not saying it's not. And it is a great opportunity to testify to a great God. But can I just tell you what? The maturity level that moves past that is a maturity that goes like this. I am just as fired up for what God's doing in your life. I am so thrilled with what God's doing in your life. You see what I'm saying? I see a mighty hand of God and it's not a selfish, self-centered only perspective where it's just about how does this affect me? But what is God doing that I see his work here and across my area that I'm living in and I rejoice and I bring praise to his name and I give him thanks for that. That's what Paul's doing here. We're, not, we're often not even thankful for what he does for us, right? I mean, we're like, do you remember back in Genesis 40 and 41 the, uh, when Joseph was in prison? You remember this, right? He went to prison. Let me ask you a question real quick, quiz time. Did he go to prison 
because he had sinned? Did he go to prison because he'd broken the law? Why was he in prison? He was what? Falsely accused, right? Tracking with me? All right, let's put yourself in Joe's feet, his sandals for a little bit. How in the world would you feel if you were stuck in that prison falsely? What would would your prayers to God be like at that point? God, what are you doing? Are you there? Can you help? Uh, Do you know what's going on? You ever felt like that? Joseph, who's one of the few guys in the Bible that you don't see like warts and stuff. I mean, they're not sinful stuff. He was a sinner. Don't get me wrong. Everybody's depraved, right? But here's a guy who uh, is laid out and he's not sinning in all these situations as he goes through them. Well, so he's in prison, okay? And so he's trusting in the Lord and the Lord sends by his sovereign hand uh, a couple of guys to him that had dreams. You remember this? There was one that was a cupbearer and the other was what? Do you remember? A baker, that's correct, okay? Okay, so uh, he, these guys are having these dreams over and over again and, and so God uses that to, to reveal Joseph and who he is as God's man, okay? This dispensation. So here... The, the cupbearer comes to uh, Joseph and he tells him about the dream to try to get an interpretation. The dream was this. Well, I keep having the same dream over and over again, Joseph. And, and, and I see a, a vine, okay? And this vine has three branches, okay? And then at the end of these three branches, there are these great big clusters of ripe grapes. And I take these grapes uh, and I squeeze them and, and, and give the Pharaoh a drink. Now, both these guys have been put in jail by Pharaoh, okay? They're not like in the best of, of situations. Pharaoh's not happy with them. The baker has a dream as well, by the way. His has, he has three uh, baskets of bread, and the top one has all kinds of bread and wonderful things in it, and birds are coming and eating out of it. Joseph interprets the dreams. Joseph says to the first guy, the cupbearer, he says, hey, here's what it means. What this means is the three, the three branches are three days, and in three days, the, kings, the, the Pharaoh's gonna send for you. He's gonna restore you to your position as cupbearer. Squeezing the grapes, right? Turns to the baker. <laughs> Yours is three days too. Baker's like, yeah, my turn. I can't wait for the good news. And it's like three days, king's gonna send for you too. Oh, great, this is awesome. This ain't, he's sending for me. And he's gonna hang you, and the birds are gonna eat the flesh off your head, and that's what's going on there. Not exactly a happy ending for him. But for the cupbearer, would you say that was a fairly happy ending? Prison to palace, would you be okay with that if it were you? You bet you would, right? And so he goes there, and just as he said, and what as he's leaving, Joseph says to him, hey, do me a favor. I'm not complaining about my situation here, but just, would you remember me before the king that I've been put in here unjustly, that kind of stuff? You bet. I'm on the way, going to the palace. Joseph, I'm sure, was waiting, right? Well, he's been there a day. Maybe he hadn't had a chance to talk to the king yet. He's been there a week. Surely he's had a chance to maybe bring this up. Now, wasn't that a great thing God did and how God used me and all this? And it's not till the end, and the Bible says it this way at the beginning of chapter 41, at the end of two full years. I mean, two years of sitting in there waiting. You see, that cupbearer had God provide for him in a wonderful way. But then as soon as he got out of the situation, what was his attitude? Was it an attitude of gratitude or just like, eh, I'm back in my deal. It's all about me. Life is good. Forget about Joseph. See, he, he had that mentality where, and that's where we get, right? Lord, it's foxhole faith. We're in the middle of this hard situation. Get me out of this situation. God gets you out of that situation. And like most of the lepers who Jesus healed, they don't even turn back and say thank you, right? This is even beyond that, right? This is the situation, not of just being mindful of the great blessings that you yourself have received, but this is the idea of being thankful for what God is doing in the lives of others. And like Paul, folks, we should be grateful for what God is doing in the lives of others. Why? Because we're members of, how how many bodies are there? We're members of what, according to the scriptures? 1 Corinthians 12. We're a member of, I'm giving you a hint here, I don't know, it's right here. One body, right? We're, we're together. Since we are one and since we are united, when one hurts, we all hurt, right? That's the James 1.27 message, by the way, isn't it? Uh, when, when we're all rejoicing, guess what? We should all be coming around rejoicing and praising and thanksgiving and all that kind of stuff too. So Paul begins this section with this outburst of thanksgiving and his God-focused vertical mindset would not allow him to do otherwise. 
He sees in them the remarkable handiwork of the creator. He sees that in their lives and he gets excited. He sees the big picture, the eternal perspective, and he breaks forth with thanksgiving. Now first, uh, notice this. Who is he thanking? Look at the text. Who is he thanking for the blessings that are in their lives? Is he thinking, oh, I thank you Colossians because you've been so good. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying. Is he saying, oh, I thank Epaphras because he did this in your life. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying either. What is he saying? He's saying the recipient of the thanks is who? God. Look at verse three there. We give thanks, Paul and Timothy, to God. Who else, right? Now that makes absolute sense if you understand theology at all, right? Because what Paul has is a high view of God. God is the one who does it. God is the one who is the bestower of great gifts. And he sees him as the source, the one who does it all. And God is the one who is owed things because salvation and what God is doing in their life all just uh, issues forth from him, doesn't it? I mean, think about this for a second. Did, Did you... Choose yourself before the foundations of the earth? It's a simple question. No, right? Did you foreknow yourself? Did you predestine yourself? Did you justify yourself? Do you sanctify yourself? Are you going to glorify yourself? The answer is a real simple no. You see, what the point is, is that God is the one who's the bestower of the great gifts. It's God who has given us all of these things. So our attitude should just burst forth with thanksgiving. Because we understand our faith is a gift, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 9 says that we have been saved by his grace, that his grace is a giving word, right? We've been given that faith. By the way, if you think your repentance is something you're doing yourself, you're even wrong on that one, right? Repentance is a gift as well. We know that from several places of scripture. I mean, in 2 Timothy 2, 25, uh, Paul is praying that God may give or grant repentance to these Gentiles. In uh, Romans 2.14, we're told that the kindness of God leads to repentance. He's the instigator of repentance. Acts chapter 11, verse 18, Peter in front of the Jerusalem council, when he's talking about the Gentiles have been saved, and they're understandably a little nervous about this because Old Testament, they were always pretty separate, right? Very separate. How do we know? He tells the story of what God has done, and he says, oh, How can we refuse for them to be part of the body because God has obviously, he says there, granted them repentance. Everything is from God. That's what our text is talking about. He speaks of God as the source. Thanks be to God. Look at it, verse three, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, on Father's Day, this is a loaded phrase. I mean, do you often skip over these kind of phrases? Every word is there for a purpose, right? God handpicked these words to be here. And it's a loaded phrase because it ties his thanksgiving into the whole package of salvation. He relates the I Father that we talked about, our Father that we talked about last time in verse 2, as the same Father of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a difference between us and Jesus Christ, right? You understand this, right? Jesus is God's Son. How? Naturally, where we are God's Son, I'll get this one, we just talked about it, by adoption. And and, and we're seeing in here, as Paul says, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're seeing his hand being shown of what he's going to talk about as the theology of Colossians unfolds regarding who Jesus Christ is. He calls him Lord, which means Jesus Christ is the ruler. He is the sovereign one. He calls him the Christ. That means he's the savior, the Messiah. And he also points to his deity as the son of God, God in the flesh. And all these are just in four words in the original language. Absolutely amazing. So just think about that verse for a little bit. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. We hear it so much that I think sometimes it loses impact. By the way, what an incredible thing just to be able to give thanks to God, right? Just to be able to have a line of communication where you can express your thanks to the creator of the universe to have that communication, to to be in a position of thanksgiving for the salvation that he's afforded us, to have this position of sonship. Staggering. There were some Danish missionaries who were translating this passage. 
And when they got to the passage and they were working through it and getting ready to translate it into the native tongue there, one of the translators just resisted because he looked at this text, he looked at this little phrase that we blow right by, and he says, I can't even translate this thing, it's so wonderful. He says, let me indeed render it, they shall be permitted to kiss his feet. <laughs> What's he saying? He's saying, I realize how much God has done and I feel... Um, overcome by the concept that I can actually, that the veil has been rent in two, that I can boldly and confidently approach God, the creator, my savior. Ever feel like that? As you ponder that kind of theology, it should make you want to give thanks always, as Paul does here. We have the ability to communicate to the mighty God Yet, check this out. We often don't. Have you thought about that? What's your prayer life like? I applaud the elders here for saying, let's, let's have some time where we get together corporately and pray, right? Let's, let's communicate with God in a very intentional way. I mean, if you were given the opportunity, you know, you can meet with anybody you want and talk to them. I mean, you jump at that, right? You can go to the president and tell him what you think about this or that, right? Some movie star, some musician, something like that. People would jump all over that. Hey, let me, oh yeah, what an opportunity. I wonder who I'll do. Oh, I'm gonna pick this out. We have an opportunity to talk to the creator of the universe and commune with him, and we often choose not to. In fact, the theology of that really is we would rather have an interview with the winner of Dancing with the Stars than God, that's the kind of people people run to talk to. What a joy it is to communicate with God. And Paul's life was lived in such a way that he rejoiced always. He was praying always. And that's where he went. He just said, man, I just give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because I see what he's doing. I see his handiwork in your life. And he bursts forth with thanksgiving from a full heart that's filled with a knowledge of who God is, a realization of Jesus Christ's work of salvation, and he does it in submission to him as Lord. And he does it because he sees God's fingerprints in the life of these Colossians who, by the way, if you'll remember, Epaphras came bearing some bad news about what was going on at the church. But he didn't just say, oh, it's all terrible there. Let me tell you what God's doing, see? Epaphras visited Paul in prison. He'd come to know the Lord under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He went home, he started a church, and he came to Paul with some concerns that false teachers were stirring up some stuff. The same kind of things that we encounter today, rules, legalism, ritualism, mysticism, worship of angels, men's philosophies, trumping God's philosophies, all these kind of things we're going to deal with as we get to chapter 2, Lord willing. But don't forget that he didn't just come with the troubles, but he gave a good report of the Colossians. He says, oh, Paul, they love the Lord and they love the brethren. I'm concerned for them, Paul. And this is what prompts Paul's thanksgiving as he hears the condition of the Colossians. Now, in the next few verses here, Paul thanks God for three characteristics that are evident in these people's life, these believers' life at Colossae. He thanks God for three things, okay? And they're on your outline. For their faith in Christ Jesus, that's the first one. For their love for all the saints, that's the second one. And for their hope that is laid up in heaven, that's the third one that we see in verses five through eight, five through seven. And these are characteristics, folks, that we need to look for in our, in our own church families, right? That we're, we desire to see God develop more and more in our own church families and be thankful to God as he does that. Now, this is a familiar trio to, to, to Paul, right? Faith, hope, and love. It's kind of an apostolic shorthand for Christianity because Christians have faith, they have love, right? And they have a hope. You see it in places like 1 Corinthians 13. It's probably the most popular. You see it as he opens up the, letter of the, the first letter of the, the Thessalonians, Galatians 5, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, Romans 5, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, 1, Timothy, or 1 Peter 3, and so on and so on. Faith, hope, love, faith, hope, love. Because it is this kind of shorthand description of a believer. It really is. And, and it's interesting, again, please notice this, that none of these items can be manufactured by somebody. You cannot manufacture faith. It's a gift of God, right? You cannot manufacture true biblical love. We love because why, First John 4? 
He first loved us, right? What about hope? Well, people hope in a lot of stuff, but you can't even manufacture a real hope. First Peter 1, 3, Christ caused us to be born again to a living hope. <laughs> so all these things are God, God uh, infused things that he gives into the life of a believer and are evidences of the reality of their, their relationship. And they all come from God and they're all a gift. Now, first we see that he thanks God for their faith in Christ Jesus. Verse four, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul mentions faith here because apart from it, I believe there can, I know there can be no Christian experience. I believe that's why he mentions it first. He's very specific here, you'll notice, about the object of the faith. He doesn't just say because of your faith. He says your faith who? In Christ Jesus. Faith is, the value of the faith is dependent upon the object of the faith. You understand what I'm saying there? In other words, what you have your faith in determines whether the faith is any good or not. Uh, it's very, very trendy today for everybody to say, well, you just got to have faith, you know, and everybody talks about their faith, but they never talk about what it's in. Paul's very specific faith in Christ Jesus. Let me give you an example. I could have all the faith in the world that I will be saved by spam, right? Spam is my savior. Would that do me any good? You really should know the answer to that question. It's not a hard one. No, it won't do any good, right? Because spam has no power to do this, right? But if I have faith in Jesus Christ, is there power in that, folks? You bet there is. Faith without an object is in vain. Faith with the wrong object is in vain. Charles Spurgeon was talking about misplaced faith one time, and he talked about two men who were floating down the stream in a boat, and they got caught in some severe rapids, okay? And they're moving towards a waterfall, People see their predicament and they're on the shore. And so they try to help them. So they get a rope and they throw the rope out there to these two men. One of the men immediately grabs the rope. The other one's starting to grab for the rope and he sees this big, strong, sturdy log floating by in the river. And he thinks, oh, you know, that looks much more secure. And he grabs a hold of the log. He put his faith in the log instead of the rope, right? The man who had grabbed a hold of the rope was pulled onto the shore to safety. The man who grabbed a hold of the log was taken downstream and over the waterfalls to his doom. The object of your faith. What is true faith? Well, true faith must be centered in Jesus Christ and his saving work. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 tells us there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved, right? The Christian life starts with saving faith. That's the birth point of it. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, right? That's why we teach the word of God. But that's only the beginning. Faith continues, right? There's the faith walk, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. We learn to work by faith. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 talks about our work of faith. We learn to pray even by faith. Go to Luke 17 for your homework and read about the parable of the mustard seed and the point that faith plays in your prayer life. We even learn to be shielded by faith when you get to Ephesians 6, 16 when we're instructed to take up the shield of faith. Faith is an integral part of the Christian walk from birth all the way through the entire walk until such time that we're glorified. And then you don't need faith anymore. That's going to be cool. That's why at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, now abide faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. Why? Because love continues on, right? Into heaven. Faith becomes sight. Hope becomes realization. By the way, note this as well. Truth faith has inherent in it obedience. Faith results in obedience. It's not that faith is a work that you're doing to try to earn anything, but the Greek word pistis comes from the root patho, which means to obey. And it, so the faith has in this, in this a concept that is more than intellectual assent, okay? It's much more than that, but it's, a, it's equated with because faith does its perfect work, there is a function of sanctification that comes with it. Not perfection, right? But there is obedience that comes with it. That's why John writes in John 3, 36, he who believes in the Son of God, that's faith, right, has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son of God shall not see life. Why? Because it's like two uh, sides of the same coin, two, like the wings of an airplane. Paul doesn't switch gear there. He uses those kind of things synonymously because true faith 
results in obedience automatically, not perfectly, but in some measure. So true faith that he's talking about here has the right object, Jesus Christ. It involves obedience as a result, tied together hand in hand, spirit enabling, right? And also, check this out, true faith is permanent. I like this one. Philippians 1, 6, right? He who began a good work in you, guess what? This is the Cummings translation. He's going to see it to the end, right? It's going to be done. Isn't that awesome? I didn't start it. I don't really maintain it. There are means of faith and things that he's given me to, uh, uh, to uh, re- respond to, and he finishes it. Isn't that awesome? I think right there, I've got a reason for Thanksgiving right there. And you do too. For yourself and for others. Such was the faith of the Colossians, folks. Their faith in Jesus Christ that showed them to be true believers. And because of that, Paul just breaks forth in the prayer of thanksgiving. Number two, Paul gives thanks to God for their love for the saints. Look at verse four. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and what? The love which you have for all the saints. One of the ways that faith proves its reality is by expressing itself through love, Galatians 5, 6. It's, it seems sometimes that we love to correct each other, and there's time for correction. There's instruction from the Bible on that. But we need to be careful how we express ourselves in love, right? And that's the biblical way to correct. You notice here in our verse that it says it's a love that they, do you see the word have there? Have for all the saints? Have is in the present tense, which means they continually have this, and they continually exercise this love for all the saints. You ought to circle that one in there. It's not spotty, it's not sporadic, but it's consistent. The Bible, by the way, instructs us that a loving God is seen best in how one loves his neighbor, and particularly in other believers you see here. And you can compare that with 1 John 4. Ouch, right? I mean, there's an old poem when I was a kid. To live above with saints we love will certainly be glory. To live below with saints we know, that's another story, right? It's so unbiblical. The church is meant to be a unified body. That we're, Not that you always get along. It's not that you're uh, homogenistic, right? You're, you're different. You have different personalities, all this kind of stuff. But you work through things because you have a common rule book, you have a common spirit, you have a common savior. And so there is nothing that a church should not be able to work through to the glory of God. John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? Even, this is Jesus speaking, even as I have loved you, but you also, in case you didn't hear him, you know, sometimes when you're, like I'm preaching right now, you hear something at the end of a sentence, you go, what was that he just said? That sounded like it might have been interesting, unlike the rest of it. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, huh? Just as you, that you love one another, just in case you didn't get it. And by this, he continues, all men will know that you are my disciples if, and here it is again, third time's the charm, right? If you have love for one another. He's not saying we earn salvation by love, but the proof of the pudding for the salvation is the love that comes out of that faith relationship. Love as I have loved you. How the Lord love us? Well, how do he love you, right? Were you lovable when he loved you? No, you're depraved, just like me. We're fighting. We're enemies, the Bible tells us with him. Haters of God. Self-lovers. Even in that situation, he loved me. And what did he do? First John 3, 16, 17, we know love by this. He laid down his life for us. And so the commandment is, you do the same. You lay down your life for the brethren. So he loved us unselfishly. He loved us completely. And he loved us, get this, sacrificially. That's how we're to love one another. You say, well, Pastor Dave, I hear you. And I know the theology. And I've heard those verses a lot of times before. But can I just tell you this? If I do that, they'll eat me alive. That's where faith comes in. Right? Vulnerability. I'm going to trust God to be the writer of wrongs. If they eat me alive, I'm going to trust God to get that right. Right? You tracking with me? Do like this if you're tracking with me. There's nobody tracking with me, as far as I can tell. Three. Okay, good. 
the idea of an unloving Christian is absolutely foreign to the Bible. It's just not there. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, and somewhat a bit of a hyperbole, Paul just breaks forth and he says, hey, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, it's no good. If I have faith, and this is the kind of faith I'm talking about, that I can move mountains, right? That if I know, have knowledge, know all mysteries, if I deliver myself up to be burned, martyr myself, but do not have love, it's nothing, it profits me nothing, it's valueless. Do you think love's important? You bet it's important. And this is not some sugar-coated, syrupy, sentimental, Valentine's, Hallmark kind of love. This is the kind of love that is a biblical, act of the will, love. Where it says, I choose to love because that's the way I was loved. I choose to sacrificially love because that's the way that God loved me. Contrast that with the world around us. Oh, you see things that may appear to be acts of love, somebody doing something nice for somebody else. But the Bible tells us that any of our best works are just filthy rags, right? Apart from Christ. And, and there's a self-motive always in those things tied up. We love those who love us. We're nice to people who are nice to us. We have people over who are nice to us. The Bible addresses all that. What this is talking about is very different from that. You love your enemies. You pray for those who persecute you. You embrace those people and you do nice things for people who are doing mean things to you as well as the others. There is a biblical metamorphosis that God does and the power of God is vividly projected to the world when we live with a love like that. Witness the early church. That's what they did, right? They were selling property and helping out people in need. The kind of stuff you were describing where families were coming around in this church to help with these different uh, opportunities of ministry that we heard even this morning. But when you do that, the world's never seen anything like it. And then they go, wow, there is something to this. There was a first century, second century uh, Greek writer by the name of Lucian who was an unbeliever, by the way. He wrote this. It is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion, talking about Christianity, help each other in their wants. That means lacks, okay? Things they lack. They, they spare nothing, he continues. Their first legislator, that's talking about Jesus, has put into their heads that they're brethren. <laughs> Even an unbeliever looks and says, there's something going on there. Not just to some, but to what does our text say? All. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, male, female, all. Colossians 3.11, right? The lost person can't figure that out. It is a relationship between believers. Chuck Colson in prison after the Watergate scandal. He'd come to know the Lord and his newfound faith was being really tested. His wife was not on board yet. She couldn't understand this whole born-again biz, Right? His son had been just picked up on drug charges. His whole world's caving in. He's not anywhere to be found. He's in prison. He can't do anything to come alongside. He can't really help them in their situation. And he's in misery. But you know what? God met him in his misery. Isn't that cool? It seems there was a group of senators that were praying for him. And one of them found an old law that allowed an innocent man to serve a prison term for the convicted man. Senators. Hard to imagine, I know. You know what? One of these other senators actually went to Colson and he volunteered to serve his sentence for him because he knew what he was going through and he knew his faith was being tested. Wow. Colson turned him down. But in that, you know what he experienced? The love for all the saints. Praise God. As a result, Colson was refreshed in the reality of his, his faith, uh, that Christian love for the saints that is a mark of true believers and the evidence of changed lives. Paul looks at the Colossians, and he's so thankful for their faith in Jesus Christ and for their love for the saints. And the third one, he's thankful for their hope. And we see that in verses five and following. Paul gives thanks, it's your third blank, for their hope laid up in heaven. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow 
beloved bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Paul places hope last here because Paul sees a stronger faith and a deeper love springing from it. The hope for a Christian, I know in our vernacular, this doesn't necessarily, hope sounds like, you know, maybe it's going to happen, maybe it won't, it's hope so, right? That's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope it has two shades of meaning. The first one is that it's a very, very secure hope, okay? It is definite, it is sure. We're not unsure in our hope. We know there is hope. It has been, look at verse 5, laid up for us in heaven. That's the idea of being set aside. It's reserved, tucked away. The same word used in Matthew 6, 20, where it says lay up. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. That's the same word, lay up there. It's used in 1 Peter 1, 4, when it talks about we obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Get this, here's the word, reserved for you in heaven. All right, reserved by God, laid up by God. Nobody's going to pry it out of his powerful hand. Amen? It's a a secure hope. It's not only a secure hope, but it's also a future hope, okay? It's the hope of the future. And that's why Colossians 2, 3, and 4 says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth, right? Because you're living in a different um, situation. Your reality is not always evident by just what you look around and see. The Christian lives in anticipation of, of a future time. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see that? He knew sufferings, but he also understood the incomparable glory that is to come. And he says it just doesn't even compare. And that's a key perspective because you're gonna, you face hardships. We all face hardships in life. Some of them are small. Some of them feel big and they're small. Some of them are absolutely devastating feeling, right? Huge losses, huge hurts, and huge pains. But the key perspective is here is I can endure all hardships because of the hope that's laid up in heaven. The roughest time, the most difficult situation, I know that my God is in control and he has a better thing planned in the long haul. What a contrast to our buy now, pay later society where we want the gratification instantly and pay for it later. We live in anticipation. I like to think of it like a kid before Christmas, right? I mean, when I was a kid, I loved Christmas because I was a greedy kid, right? <laughs> it had nothing to do with Christ or any of that kind of stuff. I'll be honest with you, I repented of that sin. But at that time, I loved the idea I was gonna get something that day. And that Christmas Eve, man, it was just like, I cannot wait. Wonder what it's going to be. A clock radio? How wonderful is that, huh? No. You, know, you see what I'm saying? That's a fallen perspective of it. But can I just tell you, if a, a broken child can feel that way about things that rust and decay and thieves break in and steal, how much more so can we as believers look forward with great anticipation and joy to the hope that is laid up when we will no longer fight this body of sin, but we will be made perfect just as he is perfect, that we will, the transformation will be complete from glory to glory to glory, where we will see him as he sees us, where we will have nothing impairing our vision, no sin, no temptation, none of that kind of things. We are in the presence of the Lord, the Lamb of God, who is on the throne, enjoying his glory forever. How cool is that? Can you wait for that? I had somebody tell me one time, you know, you know, I'm really excited about heaven, but I want to see my kids graduate. Hey, I understand I want to see your kids graduate, but let me tell you what, there's nothing in comparison to that. It was a hope that they previously heard on, he goes on and we'll build this later, from Epaphras, not from the false teachers that are spreading lies that are dealt with in chapter two. It was the word of truth, the gospel, he says there, if you look at the text. The Greek structure there is not the true word, but the word whose, it's the idea of the word whose total content is truth. You heard it? You heard that word. And that's where the hope comes from. It's come to you, he says in verse six, just as it's gone out throughout the whole world. And get this, it's constantly bearing fruit. That Greek, that's called a periphrastic presence, which means the fruit is progressing and it's never stopping. He says it's increasing here. That's passive voice. It's continually being increased. God's working, Right? And you see the progression. You heard it, you received it, and now there's fruit bearing and increasing. 
You'll notice in verse 6 that the gospel was also understood. And that Greek word denotes a thorough knowledge to know fully. They'd heard it, they'd recognized it, and accepted it. And as such, they should be able to tell the real thing from the false thing, right? As these other guys are coming in and telling false doctrines. They had understood what, does he say there in verse 6? The grace of God. That's Paul's synonym for the gospel. And he attacks, he begins to open his argument of grace versus legalism and the rules of the false teachers. It's of God, not of the world and of man. Dealing with philosophies he'll deal with in chapter 2. And they learned it, verse 7, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. So Paul's point is, hey, I'm thanking God for what he's done in your life. But listen, don't waver, okay? Don't, don't be misled. I, I see the true marks of a believer in you, and I'm so thankful for what God has done in your life, your faith in Jesus Christ, your love for all the saints, your hope laid up and secure, waiting in heaven. And he has their attention. Now, for us sitting here today, we might be going like, well, so what? That's great, man. Back then, the Colossians, they're all dead, buried in heaven, whatever. You know, right? What's this got to do with us today? That's an important question. The so what question I think is really important and often overlooked. I remember Abraham Lincoln, in the height of the Civil War, uh, used to go to a Presbyterian church to seek refuge. <laughs> and he would sneak in after the service kind of already started, and he would sit in the back kind of by the pastor's study. He would have his little stovepipe hat in his hand and he would sit down and, 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 and he would try not to interrupt and just listen to the teaching of God's word. And at that time, as you recall, the war was just tearing the nation apart, right? And it was tearing at, at Lincoln's own soul and he just lost his, his own son. He'd gone through plenty of hard things and he was at the bottom at this time and in need of sustenance. The pastor finished his message and the people began to leave. The president stood up quietly, he straightened his coat, he took his hat in his hand, and he, be, he began to walk out as well. And One of his aides stopped him, and he, and he asked him, he said, well, what do you think of the sermon, Mr. President? Lincoln answered, and he said, I thought the sermon was carefully thought through, and I thought it was eloquently delivered. The aide said, so you thought it was a great sermon? Lincoln said, no. I thought he failed. The aide was like, failed? What do you mean? He said, carefully thought through, well delivered. How did he fail? Lincoln's answer is beautiful. Okay, get this. He failed because he failed to ask something great of us. You see that? He, he failed to bring it home. How does this play into my life? Now, here's the deal. I want to ask something great of you this morning, all right? Are you ready for this? Uh, something that's going to impact your life will impact this body's life and will impact your ministry. I want to ask you to imitate the heavenward, God-focused faith and mindset of Paul. I, I want you to think about I want to have that kind of heart for other Christians that issues forth in love, just like what we see Paul doing here. I want us to, to be thankful for God and really set our minds to that we're going to recognize as God is working and not just blow by it like it's some great thing that happened, but give thanks to God and glory to him. Uh, imitate his love for brethren that you've never even met. This is the missionary letter thing, right? You get a missionary letter, oh, I've never met him, so I don't really care. No, no, no. If they're working on behalf of Christ, get fired up about what God's doing. How are you, how am I, toward brethren that we have met? And how are we towards the ones that we don't even know yet? Paul was not only caught up in the here and now, but he saw everything in light of its eternal value. This week, start to look at the situations that God places you in from that perspective rather than just the perspective I'm delayed in traffic or ah, that meal was crummy or my boss is a pain or my kids aren't doing what I'm saying. or You see what I'm saying? Start to look at it and say, you know what? God in his sovereignty has allowed me to face this circumstance today. I'm going to be thankful. I'm going to choose to be thankful for it by his grace. 
And I can't wait to see how he's going to work all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose, which is where I find myself as a believer in Christ, right? And instead of looking at this hardship that you face, whether it be a health report or whatever, as a purely negative situation, start to look at it and say, I wonder how God's going to use this, and I want to be available and usable by my God. And thank you, God, for using that in my life and in others. I had a friend of mine, he was 43 years old. I was about the same age at the time. He got cancer. Um, Unexpected. He just basically come to the Lord within a few years. I had the opportunity to be instrumental in his life. God used me that way and disciple him. And he was on fire. I'm telling you, the guy was on fire like nobody I've ever seen. Within a year, he was deceased, leaving behind three small children and a widow. I never will forget when I went into the doctor's office and he gave me the news of his cancer. I was meeting him in the hospital. His words to me were not, oh, I've got cancer, what's going to happen next? Why is God doing this? I'm growing, I'm trying to follow him. Why do I have cancer now? His words were this. I can't wait to see how God's going to use this. Oh, man, that's awesome. And I'll tell you what, his name is Steve, and he touched more people in his death and the testimony of how he handled it than he probably would have if he'd lived to be 80, 90, 100. By the grace of God, that was God's plan. And you know what the deal is? Do I feel sad for Steve? No, 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 no. I'm jealous of Steve. Because he's out of this and into that, you know what I mean? The hope is realized, the faith is sight. There's nothing, you know, we take it at God's timing. Some of us will go young, some may be old. But the question is, how do I handle it? And how do I keep that vertical perspective in the midst of my horizontal situation so that I can exhibit faith in Christ, love for all the saints, and show that I do have a true hope that is reserved in heaven and impact a society for Jesus Christ? Orange County would be turned upside down if just a small group of people like this got totally fired up about something like that. That's the great thing I'm asking you this morning. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together, Lord. We praise you that you are a great God who is sovereign. Oh, Lord, the doctrine of sovereignty, I don't know how we'd live without that because we understand you to be in control and you're working all things together for good, that you are mighty and you love us and your grace is pouring out upon us and you are a good Father. And so, Lord, we just rejoice in our circumstances. Lord, may we live this week and this week on to bring glory to your name by exhibiting a true faith, a real love, and a hope that's played out. In Christ's name, amen.